Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, a first-hand experience with coronavirus testing. They took a very quick nose swab from each of us, and we were supposed to get results in three days, and then I took, took my son home. Then, what is the right government response to the looming recession? Clearly, we need to start sending people money, and sending people more money than we're sending them. And finally, a recommendation. There has to be a period between collapse and sleep, and that's what television is for. A new drive-through coronavirus testing site is up and running in the metro Atlanta area. As the number of cases grows, there's a new warning tonight. The U.S. does not have enough coronavirus test kits to meet the current demand. The White House plans to set up 47 drive-through testing facilities in 12 states. It first showed up in the United States two months ago, just north of Seattle. Now coronavirus has been detected across all 50 states. By the start of this week, almost 50,000 Americans had confirmed cases, and the number was rising rapidly. Ross, you're one of those people who have been tested, and we want to start with your story. You and I last saw each other in New York two weeks ago, and my sense is that you started feeling sick shortly thereafterwards. Is that right? Yeah, we, we, we did the live show um, on a Monday, um, and as regular listeners know, I have both been an alarmist about the coronavirus, but I've also been on book tour. Um, so in addition to being in New York for our live show, I had been in Los Angeles, Boston, Washington, D.C. twice, and so on. Um, so in that sense, I was, I think, in a high-risk category, um, and I got home I guess it was the Wednesday that the NBA canceled its season and things started to lock down. Um, and I started feeling sort of achy and strange. And by the next morning, um, I had woken up with um, pain in my throat, um, chest pain, and um, a dry cough. So knowing enough about the <laughs> coronavirus and its symptoms, I went to the at that point, still pretty empty um, emergency room in New Haven um, and saw two doctors, both of whom actually, to my surprise, seemed very confident that I had it. Um, both of them, not to my surprise, told me that I wasn't eligible for testing because I wasn't running a fever and didn't seem to need to be admitted to the ER. And so they told me to go home and self-quarantine and try and stay away from my very pregnant wife and kids. <laughs> um, so I did that. And um, unfortunately, um, within that, basically within that day, my wife also had a dry cough. Um, and two of my kids were pretty clearly sick. And so that, that basically began our family self quarantine, which is now um, technically on, I guess, day 12 or 13. Did you have that thing of not being able to smell or taste? No, I didn't. Um, I, so I, I didn't have that, which is kind of, yeah, the most sort of creepy, creepy of the of the initial symptoms. Um, 
And as I said, I didn't have a fever. And from that point on, over the next few days, I developed, um, I'm not sure if it's technically shortness of breath. I wasn't gasping for breath sort of regularly, but whenever I, I mean, like talked to anyone on the phone or tried to read a book to my children, it was like I had, you know, climbed a 50 foot flight of stairs by, by the end. So at that point I felt pretty sure that we had it. Um, but then we had to figure out if we could get tested and we ended up being able to get a uh, script um, from a doctor to take me and my son, who was the sickest of our kids, up to Waterbury, Connecticut, which um, for listeners who don't know, is a sort of old industrial town, probably an hour and a half from New York in sort of the western part of the state. Um, not the first place you would expect to have a drive through testing facility set up. Definitely um, not. Definitely not. Um, but we, and it's possible that I should have waited until Yale New Haven opened one, but, um, I, you know, felt pretty anxious to get one. Uh, so we went up there and it was the full, you know, nurses in spacesuits, tents, um, routine. And they took a very quick nose swab from each of us and we were supposed to get results in three days. And, and I took, took my son home, um, and then we waited <laughs> for more than for three days. Can I just pause you there? Because, I mean, one of the things we've heard a lot about is this, the, the lack of available tests, which is certainly a problem. Um, but it's interesting to me that um, there was a place, albeit not that close to your home, where there were tests available for, for drive-through, meaning you didn't, it's not like you used connections to get a test, right? No, although I used a doc, you had to have a doctor um, who was willing to write you a note, basically. So I used I used that connection. Um, the ER doctors wouldn't have written me a note. And when I got there, I will say that, you know, this was, I guess, a Monday. Um, so five or six days into the lockdown era. And they told me that they had run 100 tests and they were about to run out. And so what happened with your test results? So mine came back, uh, I guess, five days later, and there was apparently some confusion where they had switched from using LabCorp to using Quest or vice versa um, between one day of testing and the next. So my doctor didn't know where the test results were. And when they called, they called the wrong office anyway. So uh, but the upshot was that I was negative um, and my son's results were delayed uh, for another three days. So we just got them. We're taping this on Tuesday. We got them literally last night as I was finishing up a column about this, except we didn't get them because apparently, and I still haven't gotten the whole story, but apparently they needed to go back and do a retest on them. I'm assuming maybe they were inconclusive, um, but they hadn't taken enough nasal material in the initial test to uh, redo the test. And so since Again, none of us have been hospitalized, and thank God uh, our kids are feeling better. I don't think he'd be eligible for retesting anyway. Um, but you don't feel if I'm, you don't think you don't feel like your negative results are conclusive, right? No, I mean, you know, whenever you get a negative test in a situation like this, you know, you don't want to be the guy claiming that you had it <laughs> and being melodramatic. But right, but didn't you say uh, there's a fairly high rate of false negatives? So there's certain, you know, there certainly are false negatives, and I mean, all, all that I can say is, if it had just been my kids, I would have said it was a very bad chest cold. Um, they had really mild fevers, um, but 
you know, for me, I mean, if it was a flu, I have literally never had a flu that did anything like that to my lungs in 40 years of getting lots and lots of sicknesses because we have small children. Um, and we have, I mean, again, this is anecdote, but so our friends in Minnesota, similar experience, the husband get, had breathing problems, got tested, was negative. We know people across the street from us where uh, another couple with a kid where the husband was exposed to people in his work and the whole family got sick and they too had like chest tightness and he tested negative. Um, so obviously I have my suspicions <laughs> here that, that we actually. Well, yeah, but yeah, So how are you thinking it. about it? I mean, you know, so I've, because I, I mean, I, obviously I, I believe you and it seems, you know, likely that you had it from what you've described at the same time, everyone I know, I feel like, feels like they're experiencing some of these symptoms. Yes. And this is more of my, my wife, you know, I, I'm much more confident that we've had it than my, my wife is. My wife, um, who in fairness also had milder symptoms than I did, is more likely to say, well, 50-50 or something. Um, and, you know, I mean, when, when I got the negative test, I spent a certain amount of time that evening trying to convince myself that you know, that this was good news and I didn't have it. And then the next day I had a relapse. <laughs> so, I mean, it's been sort of an ebb and flow where I'll feel like I've turned a corner and then I'll get a little chest pain the next day. Um, and, you know, with a general decline across the 12 or 13 days. Well, I have to say, I'm grateful. However, this turns out with your test, I'm really grateful for how seriously you took it. I mean, when you and I saw each other about a month ago, and when we were uh, saying goodbye to each other on the streets of Washington, I stuck out my hand. And, and I remember you looked at me with a big smile and you said, yeah, no, thanks. Yeah, um, no, no. I was, You were the I first was... person to basically refuse to shake my hand. That was, I was an early adopter for that. Yeah. Um, it didn't help. I, well, maybe it helped me. I mean, if I, we didn't have it, it helped me. But um, there was definitely a moment, even like on the book tour, the first event or one of the first events I did, I felt like I had to shake everybody's hand. Um, this was probably three weeks ago. And then I became more comfortable saying no. And then by the end, everybody was sort of, you know, elbow bumping and so on, which is still, I think, not really recommended because it gets you within that that six foot range. And, you know, I bumped elbows with Arthur Salzberger Jr. at our after our live show. So hopefully he's OK. How are you guys doing with homeschooling? <laughs> Sorry. Um, just yeah, I feel like maybe Ross terrific. is probably something you've always dreamed of. Terrific. Yes. Finally, I get to impart my, you know, bizarre <laughs> world historical views to my poor suffering children. I mean, look, you know, our school is doing a great job of sort of trying to do video chatting and supplying work and keeping tabs. But we've got three kids of various ages. It's we've been sick. You know, it's incredibly hard to juggle um, all these things. So I consider it a good day if um, if I have my older kids do a couple of worksheets at the dining room table and have them do, you know, reading time for half an hour. And then I'm trying to teach them state capitals. A friend of mine has a great idea, which is she said that she felt really embarrassed about the fact that she had not yet taught her teenagers how to do some basic cooking things like boil pasta and stuff like that. Uh, and boy, are they going to learn it now. <laughs> and that's basically a version of what we're trying to do, which is um, 
I, I'm really impressed with how my kids are handling it. I, I told them that if I had to choose between enduring this as an adult or as a kid, I would definitely choose to endure it as an adult. I think it's harder on them than us. See, my kids think that we're on vacation. They're enduring this perfectly fine. Um, they're not unhappy about the situation, but you know, even just our school has been very good. They've been communicating with us a lot, but the sheer number of platforms and kind of apps that we've been asked to install, I feel like even if I didn't have a job, I don't think I could keep keep on top of it. I mean, it's weird. I feel like even though we're stuck at home doing nothing, I actually feel much busier than I felt in my normal life before because I have to do a lot of stuff that I used to outsource. It's certainly a you know, a pre-1990s kind of American experience at the very least. And I think the hard thing is, is that we still probably have much, much longer of this than we've had so far. Well, Ross, we are glad that you are feeling better and you'll have to keep us posted about uh, if the te- anything changes with the test results. Um, I absolutely will. I mean, my hope is that someday there will be, you know, blood tests that can test for antibodies and we can go back and, you know, retest at least myself to try and get more of a handle on what happened. But that's obviously a long way off. And um, as long as we're feeling better, we're content with that result. And boy, it's another reminder that the the shortage of tests and all of the flaws with the tests in this country is is a massive part of the problem for us right now. So we will leave it there and take a quick break and be right back. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, Plus, This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. The American economy now appears to be shrinking at the fastest rate since the Great Depression. Some economists are forecasting a 20% or even a 30% fall in GDP in the second quarter of this year. Congress has responded by taking up a massive stimulus bill. We're taping this on Tuesday when the final outcome of that stimulus bill is unclear, but almost any plan seems likely to be centered around checks that will be sent to all Americans below a certain income level. And I want to start here because I think that this idea has bipartisan support, and I'm not saying that I'm opposed to it. It probably makes sense at the very beginning. But I think it's a big mistake for us to imagine that uh, going forward that the right response to this is going to be sending people cash. Um, If people get $1,000 or $2,000 
people who are doing okay aren't going to spend that money. And people who've lost their job, a thousand or two thousand dollars isn't nearly enough. And I guess my my take on this is that the response, the economic response, really needs to be first and foremost a public health response, because we just can't get the economy started no matter how many checks we send people until we break the virus. And it feels to me like some of this response is too much predicated on the idea of this being a normal financial crisis and economic crisis as opposed to one that is caused by a virus. And um, I'm interested, uh, Michelle, why don't you start? I'm interested in, in whether you think that we basically have something that looks like a good response from Congress. Well, I don't think we have a, a good response yet. But look, I think clearly we need to start sending people money and sending people more money than we're sending them, right? I mean, a lot of people, the rent is about to come due. And they, you know, have been sent home from work. There's no prospect of going out and getting another job. And to create some kind of complicated means testing formula is just going to slow the whole thing down. And so I think you send people money and then you tax it back from the rich later. And then I think we should be doing what a lot of other countries are doing, which is subsidizing payrolls, right? Which is basically saying that we... And there do, people are doing it in different ways. You know, one way you can do it is say that you will bail out these companies um, as long as they continue paying their workers or just kind of directly pay workers 80% of their salaries. I mean, you're right that you're not going to fix the economy until you fix the underlying public health crisis, which clearly Republicans, um, at least the Republicans in charge, seem to not realize because there's been in the last few days this, I mean, really insane move to basically say, you know, the the cost of social distancing has been too high on the economy. And, you know, if some people have to die for our economy to get moving again, um, so be it, which is, you know, amazing to hear from the people who ranted about death panels when they were worried about Obamacare, but is increasingly the you know, this sort of seems to be the direction that the administration is going in. So you do have to solve the public health crisis, but people can't wait for you to solve the public health crisis, right? They need food and shelter and to be able to take care of their material needs right now. I mean, I guess that as a first response, the idea of, you know, kind of shoveling a thousand, two thousand dollars out to people, I, I, I get that. But I think going forward, I don't think if this continues, and I think it will, I don't think Congress should do it again, because I think it's too much money for people who have kept their jobs. For those people that they don't need $1,000 right now, and they're going to save it, which is to say it won't help the economy. And for people who've lost their jobs, it's not nearly enough. And so like you, I'd like to see much more of the government essentially subsidizing payrolls. Uh, I'd like to see them make it really, really easy for businesses to get loans. And then I'd like to see extremely generous unemployment relief. And um, to me, the, the future responses should be more based on those things and less based on sending everyone a check. Ross, where are you on this? So, I, I mean, I would say I mostly agree with what seems to be the the emerging consensus that the European approach of trying to effectively encourage companies to furlough workers rather than fire them um, to sort of maintain, basically to try and freeze the economy in a sense, like you're turning off a car and planning to just sort of restart it and leave it as is. Um, 
and that means that yeah i pro i probably agree that sort of a one time check followed by um generous unemployment um plus the sort of small business loans that Marco Rubio and others have been pushing that is, I assume, I think part of this package, but you need more of it. I, I think on the question of sort of the, the like reopening the economy, I guess I would distinguish between some of the crazy and stupid things that are being said by some people on the right, where it's, you know, essentially saying, oh, it's just a problem in New York and a couple of cities and we need to reopen things everywhere immediately because the economy will die. I think that's ridiculous. Um, but I do think it's reasonable to set goals at this point and say that we want to be assessing you know, every two weeks, what we can do and whether we can start to reopen things and also sort of assessing differences between states. I, I do think that rural states are going to have a different experience of this and may, you know, the policies that are necessary in New York are not necessarily the policies that you're going to want in Nebraska. Um, right. But you already and- have that difference. Right. I mean, you don't I mean, it's the governors that are making these decisions about, you know, shutting down schools and businesses and the like. So Absolutely. But things like, but, you know, just on that example, one, this is why even if the president wants to just like open things up and go full throttle in two weeks, it's not going to happen because he doesn't have that power. Um, But things like, you know, the governor of Virginia announced that schools will be closed um, and, you know, for the remainder of the year. I mean, my, my basic view is that we need to ramp up mask production to insane levels. And that if you could get to a point where in major cities, people were just wearing masks as a matter of course, you could imagine opening things oh, but, up. I mean, I, think, I agree with you that there could be, that there should be goals, but they don't, they're not, they don't seem to be setting kind of public health goals that would then get you to a place where you could then open things up, right? I mean, obviously it would be much, it would be preferable if we could start, um, you know, doing mass testing, having, you know, temperature checks at businesses the way they're doing in South Korea. There doesn't seem to be any kind of plan to get out of it in a rational manner. It's more just, let's see how much the hospitals can take. I mean, my assumption is that if we are right about the likely pace and spread of the disease, that this kind of argument will be very quickly overtaken by high death rates in Red America as well. Not necessarily in the more rural areas, but in, you know, the major cities in Texas will look, you know, again, if they if they don't sort of continue to implement closures, they will look like New York and New Orleans seemingly are, are about to look. And I, I mean, I... I don't mean this like as a sort of sanguine interpretation of what's going on in conservatism. I think that the there is a kind of, you know, a kind of totally rotten kind of like baby boomer era conservatism that is making a spectacle of itself over the economy right now. Um, I also think that people in like my faction of conservatism, the sort of Rubio's and Josh Hawley's and even Mitt Romney's have been doing a really good job. But Ross, I don't agree that Marco Rubio and other Republicans are handling this well, because here's the problem. Yes, you're right that if large parts of Red America basically don't take this very seriously for the next couple of weeks, um, the virus will get worse and then they will start taking it seriously. But this is an urgent moment. And the fact that we 
don't have the president of the United States getting up and urging people to take it more seriously, um, that he's instead kind of talking about when it might end, and that and that Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley aren't willing to defy the president of the United States means that there are. Very what do you mean few... by what do you mean by defy the president of the United States? I mean Marco Rubio's statements about what's going on, and I mean Lindsey Graham, who's not like on my team, whatever my team of conservatives would be, came out yesterday or the day before and said, we obviously can't restart the economy without getting the virus under control. I mean, lots of lots of Republicans are saying reasonable things. They, they, they are admittedly not getting up and giving speeches denouncing Trump. But then again, neither are blue state governors because they desperately need him to help them. I mean, this is the bottom line is that Trump is the president, um, not which is not something that I ever desired to happen, but he is. And as long as he is um, getting in a war with him rather than trying to prod him towards taking correct action, it seems like the reasonable thing. Like someone like Tucker Carlson, right, who's the one Fox News host who took this seriously from the beginning, you know, went to Mar-a-Lago and tried to like talk Trump into taking this seriously and basically devoted a bunch of monologues on his show to like advertisements to Trump to take it seriously. Now, is that ideal? No, it's not ideal. But is it it would it be more helpful if Carlson just denounced the president every night? I doubt it. But, you know, again, but some it, would be, it would be better. It would be better if he wasn't president. But some of the urgency that Tucker Carlson, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but some of the urgency that Tucker Carlson showed about just how serious it is, is the kind of thing that I think we need to see more from from national prominent Republicans, even if they don't want to pair it with criticism of Trump because they don't want to criticize dear leader. I'd take it. But but I just I, the right. The extent... I mean, the Republicans in Congress are about to pass a, you know, two trillion dollar economy wide bailout. Right. I mean, that's that that does seem to suggest that they're taking it seriously. And people like Hawley and Rubio and Romney were out front trying to fix the things in the bill that you were or maybe Michelle was criticizing where you had, you know, the initial draft of the bill had standard Republican ideas about means testing and benefit cutoffs. And um, and a bunch of Republicans said, don't do that. Just like plow money into the economy. Well, so, the other problem with the initial draft of the bill, or I guess the bill that they're negotiating as we speak, is that they want this, um, what is it, $500 billion slush fund for Steve Mnuchin to dole out as he sees fit. Yes. Although I, my understanding is that a big chunk of that ends up administered by the Fed rather than Mnuchin. But um, I think that from the point of you aren't getting some kind of outside of some marginal circles, you aren't getting some kind of, you know, rigid small government, you know, <laughs> we're not going to bail out the economy response from Republicans at all. So I think that's good. Yes, let's leave it there. Uh, before we head to this week's recommendation, which will come from Ross, we want to take a moment to hear from all of you. Last week, we asked how coronavirus was affecting your thoughts about voting in the 2020 election. Hello. Hi. And here is what you had to say. Hi. So I was actually a poll worker in Florida at the last minute in terms of vote by mail. You know, the thing that concerns me the most is, you know, it works in some states like Washington and Oregon, but can we really trust, say, the government in Texas or Georgia to send out all the ballots to all the people who uh, should be getting them? Hi. My name is Jane Pratt. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. And I do worry that the Trump administration, that they would make it so tenuous for people to 
um, vote, I just worry that anything that the Trump administration can do to cause voter suppression in November um, and with the Republican-held um, state that I live in, I just worry that it would be used to um, suppress any Democratic vote. My name is James Lofton. I feel like Alabama's legislature needs to finally pass some kind of vote by mail. The legislature is a Republican-led legislature, of course, and they will not change this. Hello, this is Kathy Savage, and I live in South Carolina, and I was traveling during our primary, so I voted by mail. So easy, squeezy, peasy or something. Anyway, it was very easy. Hi, my name is Peter, and... I live in Oregon, and uh, I joined the military right out of high school, and um, I was able to vote by mail in my home state for the entire 24 years that I was in the military. But when I retired, I came to live in Oregon, and Oregon has vote by mail, and I realized that I had never stood in line to vote in my entire life, and I've still never done that. My name is Mindy Halsey. I'm a resident of Utah. We vote by mail primarily, and it has been immensely successful. Hi, this is Marilyn Blumenstein. I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. And my recommendation under the circumstances is to expand the number of days for in-person voting beyond the one Tuesday in November to uh, up to a week. Hi, this is Barry Ross calling, and voting traditionally happens indoors, understandably. If there's a way of giving people numbers when they first come so they can go back to their cars and maybe look for a lighted sign someplace that tells them their numbers approaching so they can get out of their cars and come over to the voting table. Uh, this could be done indoors as well, I suppose. Thanks. That's it. Bye. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation when we make a suggestion that is meant to take your mind off of the news. Not an easy thing in these times, I recognize. Ross, it is your turn. What do you have for us? I mean, I've been to so many Connecticut state parks and I really can't choose just one to recommend. <laughs> um, and I was going to recommend something for homeschooling, but I, my homeschooling is so incompetent. So I'll just recommend a Netflix show. Uh, my wife and I have been taking our mind off the collapse of Western civilization by watching Narcos, which is um, Netflix's drama about the Medellin cartel and Pablo Escobar and the DEA agents who tried to take it down in the 1980s. And it spends a lot of time trying to explain the complex history of Colombia. And there's a little too much sort of throat clearing and stuff. And the American lead is not great. Um, but the guy who plays um, Pablo Escobar, uh, Wagner Moura, who's from Brazil, is terrific. And the show is just like, it's just sort of escapism in this, like, you know, the problems of drug smuggling and the horrible crimes and, you know, the, the terrible assassinations of politicians and so on. I mean, it's all terrible, but it's, it seems very sort of familiar and ordinary. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been decent escapism for us over the last uh, week or so of our own excitement.
That sounds good. Has either of you noticed any problem with Netflix streaming times? I haven't, but I've heard that's something other people are experiencing now that the whole world is basically trying to entertain <laughs> this themselves. Is, this online. is the no, ultimate I'm problem. I'm jealous of, of you guys that you have time to watch Netflix. Well, there's an hour after the kids go to bed, I guess. That's, I, that's, I guess. Um, I feel like after the kids go to bed, I make our dinner and then we collapse. Yeah, I mean, we're collapsed. We're in a state of collapse when, <laughs> when this when this happens. But there has to be a period between collapse and sleep. And that's what television is for. Sweet, sweet television. Ross, what's the recommendation? Uh, Narcos on, on Netflix. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening. If you have ideas or questions, leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by James T. Green for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Michaela Teodori, and Ian Prasad Philbrick. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Please be safe out there, and we'll see you back here next week. Hi, this is Joan Rodema. I'm a huge fan of all of you. The argument, David's columns, my lifeline to sanity during this time. So please keep writing, keep thinking, and be there for us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.